0: Hello, and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, policy, and politics that drive Texas. I'm your host, Brian Phillips, I'm the Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and not with me today is my normal co-host, Derek Cohen, our Vice President of Policy. Uh, he's out this week, but we do have a very special guest. Uh, Tanner Ayliff is our Policy Director at TPPF for, uh, for our Right on Healthcare program, and so we're going to talk This is going to be the healthcare show. We're going to talk all about healthcare, which is kind of an issue that is very important, of course, in, in uh, people's lives. It's one of the top two or three issues every time we ask people around Texas. But I don't think it gets the kind of attention that it needs to get. And so we wanted to have Tanner come on and talk to us today about healthcare affordability and access and and all the the biggest issues. And we'll get into what those issues even are, uh, according to Taylor here in just a few minutes. Uh, But first, of course, I always want to do my shameless plug for our fantastic newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter called The Post. Uh, It has exclusive material in there. It has issues about current events, all the things that uh, TPPF is working on, kind of our takes on everything. Uh, And it always has some fun stuff in there as well. So you can sign up for the post at texaspolicy.com slash the post. All right, Tanner, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, so the healthcare show. Um, I'm just going to ask a really, really broad question. You know, let's just get into it. I know most people, when they think about healthcare, it's all about access. It's all about making sure that they have uh, the ability to get the 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 you know the care that they need at the time that they need it. And then also, you know, affordability. Those are kind of the broad issues that we that we think about when we think about healthcare. What you know specifically are the big issues in healthcare right now?
1: I probably say like number one is that people don't understand how our healthcare system works. Like, right. <laughs> whether it be like actually trying to navigate, figuring out if you need to see a proctologist versus like uh, seeing a private, like a pediatrician, people don't really know, even know the difference there. Also, like the financing side too. Like if you ask, if you pull most Americans right now and you ask them, hey, do you know the difference between a premium deductible? You'll get like less than four percent of people being able to say they do.
0: Right. Um and so in in terms of um you know the big issue which is affordability mm-hmm. and um you know and access you know the, one of the big issues on affordability is 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 transparency, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it seems like the healthcare. You know, we laugh kind of uh, jokingly about how complicated it is. One of the big problems is nobody knows what things cost, and the vast majority of stuff is not emergency services, right? I mean, it's not yes. like you get in a car wreck and then you know when the EMS shows up, you say, well, you know, which hospital is the cheapest one that's going to fix my leg, right? I and mean, the vast majority of stuff is elective, is elective uh, procedures or or you know normal shoppable, healthcare. Yeah. yeah, shoppable, right? And yet there's no way to shop. There's there's or at least most people don't know that you can or they don't know about things like cash price and all of that Mm -hmm. Um, what are what is the you know the policy wonks, so to speak like yourself (laughs) doing to try and, and address that issue
1: yeah, so I think we're thinking about price transparency. This is following up from the former Trump administration, where there was a recognition that uh, people, when even with ins- like with insurance, would go to the hospital and somehow they would end up with a surprise medical bill that was like a couple thousand dollars for the most basic things, like mm-hmm. whether it be uh, child delivery or it'd be getting a few stitches. And so, what we want to do is we believe that part of the reason why Americans are feeling like they're losing control of their health care is because they can't understand cost or price. And so the idea was to say, "Hey, you hospitals are trying to hide your prices. You need to start sharing with them, like both the negotiated rates, with the insurance companies, but also, and you're not taking insurance, like the much more affordable cash price, and making that available to the patients. And that way, they might have a better chance of being able to shop around. Also, uh, as you said earlier, it's well, people might not realize this, but according to like Health and Human Services, 63% of all healthcare services are considered shoppable, meaning they, they can be scheduled in advance. Mm-hmm. And considering how high-cost, high-priced healthcare can be. It's actually in a lot of people's interest to look around, even if you're going out of network or staying in network or looking at your insurance option to get you to a more affordable doctor. Like These are all things that should be considered. But since we kind of been pandering or capitulating our like consumer power over to a third-party entity like an insurance company, people become alienated from knowing how to do that. And they're mm-hmm. not really accustomed to it anymore. And so I think Just uh, having that missing because like if you're going to the grocery store, you know how to shop, right? If you're going to if you're looking to get a new car, you know how to ask your mechanic friend or like look at auto blogs. Mm -hmm. Healthcare, like you need MD to be able to make good decisions. (laughs) But on top of it, you're also like, crap, I need this. I need to figure out this good decision. And I also try not to like go bankrupt because of it. So it all feels overwhelming. And I so the idea so the idea here to kind of approach that is giving people the incentive to start shopping. There's a lot of cool stuff that we did in Texas with HB2002. That essentially gives you deductible credit when you're able to find the most affordable cash price. Mm -hmm. And we're also just making sure that more locations are being transparent with their prices.
0: So I I really think, I mean, this really kind of opened my eyes just a few years ago that this was even, uh, that this you know, cash price and things like that were even an option. Um, I don't think a lot of people really understand that. So I want to dig into it real quick. We're going to get to some other big topical issues that are kind of in the headlines right now about uh, Medicaid and all of that. But I I do want to dig in because I think it's really important for people to understand, you know, you talk about the the, mm. the negotiated rates and kind of all how that happens behind closed <laughs> doors and then and then segue into a client on what the cash price is and what people should do you know if they go in if they're having you know, how, how do they shop and what should they do when they go in and, and meet with their provider they can actually ask these questions
1: i know how the healthcare care system is terrible because like we should be explaining <laughs> almost every jargon word right and there's too right. many of them yeah so a cash rate or a cash price or a self-pay rate is when a patient is going to a provider and they're not going to use their health insurance. And what this does is that uh, the doctor or the hospital is happy to lower the price or the co- or the charge that will be placed on you for getting a service is because they don't have to waste like 90 days, 120 days to fight with the insurance company to get the claim processed. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to give you an example, when I was calling for cash price quotes in Nashville for a diagnostic colonoscopy. It was a cheeky way for us to show legislators how crazy prices can be, in, a, like even in a city market. Uh, we found one independent endoscopy center that was charging uh, 541s for a cash price for colonoscopies. Well, just less, less than a mile away, Vanderbilt was charging $4,628. So it can be, it can be. There can be a huge delta. But the more interesting thing is that uh, these are all cash prices, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't uh, the negotiated price that your insurance company is setting up with the doctor or the hospital on your mm-hmm. behalf. Those rates, actually in Nashville, were like twenty four hundred dollars. So some people don't realize is that uh, you have to pay out, you have to pay uh, for a colonoscopy through your deductible anyways. The out of pocket spending right, yeah, you have to do. Right. And what I'm trying to say here is that there's actually way affordable cash prices well below than what your insurance company is able to negotiate. Mm-hmm. But if you're not looking for those or getting information given to you to show you that, you might end up just going with what your insurance company was able to do and you're stuck. Right. Also, uh, you might ask, like, well, why are, why is my insurance company able to negotiate a really low price? Yeah. And this, and, is, and that's
0: kind of the point, right? Is that yeah. they, you know, they have all these clients. You think that they could use that leverage, or all these, um, you know, the yeah, I mean, all these customers. You think that we could use that leverage to go in and, and negotiate down the price? But mm-hmm. that's not often the case. Sometimes the cash price is significantly lower.
1: No, no, it's uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but health insurance doesn't function like any other type of health, ins- like any type of insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think of auto, uh, house, or life insurance, you're paying a small amount of money in the off chance that something totally unexpected happens, that's really, like, triggering a very expensive event. Healthcare, we almost believe that we need health insurance for everything, right? Whether it be our prescriptions, getting a physical, or actually getting the big life-saving surgery stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's really what's happening is you're, these, uh, since about 93% of Americans are getting, uh, uh, there's there's someone else out there covering their healthcare, like a middleman, whether it be the government or a billion dollar private uh, insurance group. Mm -hmm. And hospitals, are not looking at you, they're not basing prices based on what you get in your biweekly paycheck or what's in your savings account. They're looking at what that multi-billion dollar insurance company can pay out for these services, what the federal government or the state can pay out for those services. So a lot of us, by just be by virtue of being in risk pools, being insurance risk pools, yeah. the price is being set on what that risk pool can pay. It's not based on what you as an individual can pay. So a lot of the times, even though it's we think it's great that we are mitigating the lion's share of a medical bill, we're actually kind of... Giving our consumer power, or we're not—we're no longer the real customer as patients in our healthcare, mm-hmm. and since we're no longer the customer. Prices aren't set on us, and it's getting out of control.
0: Right. And so, uh, one of our other uh, former colleagues used to say, "It's you know, it's just it, it's not you're not managing risk with this kind of insurance. You're just paying ahead for your medical bills, essentially. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, outside of you know, like you said, a real catastrophic emergency, you're just paying up front for your medical care that you're going to receive uh, later on. And that's not really insurance, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's that's that what, what that is is just essentially you know, you're you're paying for all everything out of pocket. It's just going Going through a, a different mechanism. Um, mm-hmm. All right, so I want to get into some of the uh, the issues that are you know topical right now on on care um, that in, that everybody needs to know about, especially you know people who are concerned about our taxes and our spending and our deficits and things like that. Um, one of those is Medicaid. Yes. Um, there is a you know significant push from the left uh, to try and expand Medicaid uh, for certain individuals. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know like what what is that issue of Medicaid expansion and and, and Texas is one of, um, I don't know, only a handful of states. One of 12, yeah. One of 12 states that has not uh, expanded Medicaid and, and, you know, expanded eligibility essentially is what mm. that means. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and why Texas has not expanded Medicaid?
1: So in the spirit of explaining complex words, uh, just for the folks tuning in that don't know this, Medicaid is a joint state and federally funded and administered public health insurance designed to cover short-term and long-term services for people considered low income, mm-hmm. both individuals and families. So when we talk about expanding that, uh, typically when if for these non-expansion states like Texas, those states treat Medicaid to be a true truly like a pro- like temporary safety net, right? You're only going to be using it um, if you are having struggles getting a job that helps you get the resources to get coverage elsewhere. It's truly for like the truly needy right. So that's uh, what...
0: Uh, disabled folks, um, uh, children, women and children. Pregnant know, women. Preg- pregnant women, yeah. Yep, and like then that. also
1: elderly folks that uh, are low income who yep. need help paying for nursing homes is typically how a lot of Medicaid caseloads will look like. And uh, in Texas, like I think only 7% uh, are considered able-bodied folks that are on the program back in 2019. It's yep. changed a little since uh, 2020. So Which we'll get into. Yeah, which we'll get into. <laughs> so expansion, right? Expansion is when your state goes, knocks on the federal government's door and says, hey, I want more money. And the federal government's like, cool, we'll give you more money to help you manage your program only if you are more generous and lenient with your uh, eligibility criterion, like mm-hmm. like essentially allowing more people who make more money to go onto your Medicaid program. So and, healthier,
0: wealthier, more able-bodied
1: people onto this program. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's not too it can be radical depending on which state and how far they go with Medicaid expansion. Um, but a lot of times it's like instead of just as an individual, you know, your most Medicaid programs that haven't expanded will say you can't be making more than fifteen thousand dollars a year and twenty twenty three dollars. But now it's getting bumped up to anywhere from like twenty to north of that. So there is some working class people who are all of a sudden getting coverage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Texas hasn't expanded. Um, which just seems very controversial these days is because, you know, inflation's happening, people, uh, their wages isn't going as far as they used to, and also they're scared of incurring a really astronomical medical bill, right, all the while being in a healthcare system they don't understand. So there's a lot of looking towards the government to expand Medicaid it's because when you're on Medicaid, you don't pay an insurance premium. You don't pay a deductible. You don't pay out a medical bill. Right. That's uh, something that people want to get protected on. But Texas hasn't expanded, not because they don't care for low income folks or that they want to run the risk of them uh, incurring a medical will. They do is because they know that the way that Medicaid is built, as it is right now, has fundamental flaws, nor does it really fix the underlying issues that are making our healthcare system a disaster. So, for example, like Medicaid won't help you. If you don't have a primary care doc in your county, Medicaid will not help you. If you don't have a single OBGYN in your county, mm-hmm. Medicaid will not help you. If you don't have a single hospital <laughs> in your <laughs> in your county. To be more blunt, Brian, like your Medicaid card isn't going to resuscitate you after cardiac arrest or if you have a seizure, your Medicaid card is not going to help you deliver your baby or ch- like uh, or things get complicated, give you a C-section. Right. That takes doctors mm-hmm. and Medicaid doesn't create doctors. And so when if expanding, it doesn't do that either. Mm-hmm. Also. Doctors right now aren't taking Medicaid. More and more doctors are not taking Medicaid. Like uh, the TMA did a survey uh, a couple years ago, 67% of Texas doctors were taking Medicaid. Now less than 41% are. Hmm. And they're not doing it, again, because doctors don't like low-income folks or anything like that. They're doing this because every time they see a Medicaid individual, they run the risk of not getting paid, like losing money, because Medicaid notoriously pays way less than private health insurance. Mm-hmm. And this causes you to be treated differently, or you just lose access to doctors altogether. So expanding this program can actually put people in a bind, as well as because of the demand, because when you're on no-cost health insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, you and I might pause in our house and when we get a tummy ache, because we <laughs> might want to go to the emergency room at the time because we might be like, oh, gosh, what's if it's appendicitis? But since we have skinned the game, right, we pay cost. Just we, chuck
0: some Pepto-Bismol. Yeah. yeah so. just, just
1: shove some Pepto, yeah. But we pause and we call a friend or we call our primary care doc to ask if this needs to be escalated. But when you have no cost health insurance, you just go to the emergency room. And so you also notice with Medicaid expansion is that a lot of states have done this emergency waiting, like, waiting room times have gone up. Mm-hmm. Ambulance response times are getting longer. Um, literally no cost uh, reasons for delays in care is again exacerbated. Mm -hmm. This all happens around Medicaid expansion. The other, I think we should say a story though too, is that it's not even just the emergency room backing up, you lose access to specialists as well. Um, And I'm I'm all saying this from a place of having been like raised on Medicaid in Oregon and Washington my entire childhood. Mm. So I understand how at first Medicaid seems like this very shiny and valuable thing that's like an asset to low income folks. But every time I didn't have to go to the emergency room, It was a disaster for me. It didn't help me. It actually put me... It made it worse off. And so when I was playing uh, college ball in Oregon, I tore my ACL. A week later, a really close friend of mine also tore his ACL. Just due to the way that the school had us contracted, we both went to a nearby hospital with to see a really good orthopedic surgeon. So same geography, same injury, uh, same doctor, and also the treatment plan was the same. We actually got the same uh, uh, hamstring grafts to make (laughs) the new ACL. The difference was that I was on organ Medicaid, my friend was on private health insurance. It took me three months to get the MRI and the the surgery finally like scheduled. It took my friend on private health insurance only a week. They only waited a week because they wanted the swelling to go down. Mm -hmm. And for the people tuning in, this should make them ask like, why the heck did Tanner have to wait three months while he was like in a a financially vulnerable situation on Medicaid? And I actually had the same question at the time. So I asked (laughs) my orthopedic surgeon, I was like, hey, what the heck, especially after week three went by and I didn't, no thing was happening to me, mm-hmm. right? And he's like, Tanner, I don't know how to explain this to you, is but uh, Medicaid looks at your surgery like it's elective, meaning that it's not necessary. And we're trying to argue with them to explain that you're an athlete, you also need this functionality it's an injury. to injury. Yeah, like my knee was going over my shin. It was like floating <laughs> in space. And actually because of that, I fell down the stairs and tore my meniscus as well as I was waiting to get my surgeries. So all that happened, right? And I said, okay, is there something I can do? Can I advocate? against like, can I call Medicaid or OHP Plus to get this all resolved?" He's like, that might help, but the reality is like, we're still gonna wait. I'm like, why? He's like, because Medicaid's only giving me like 67 cents to the dollar. He's like, not the dollar that's made up, but a dollar that breaks even for me. Mm-hmm. And so I need to see people on private health insurance that gives me money so I can afford to take the loss on you. Yeah. And I was just completely blown back, like blown away. Like this, I was like, this is like crazy. Why am I being like discriminated against? Yeah. And uh, what ended up happening in the grand scheme of things was that uh, Medicaid didn't even come through for me. They denied me every step of the way. And my doctor ended up just having to write me off as a charity care case. And so it's like, great, this might help people get access to the emergency room, the most cost, like the most expensive form of healthcare. But Mm -hmm. if I need anything else, uh, am I screwed?
0: Yeah. Well, so I mean, just to recap, I mean, that's a really powerful story, uh, personal story that you have uh, on that. I mean, it's it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, Medicaid doesn't work for the people for whom it was intended. Yes. So there's a lot of problems with Medicaid, and I think you know, I mean, whether you think we should or shouldn't have a Medicaid program, we're still going to have one. So maybe you know, the policy should should try to figure out a way so, so that it actually works for people mm-hmm. for again for whom it's intended. And then the idea is there that if it already doesn't work for the people, you know, who are on it, why would we add Two million more Texans who are (laughs) able-bodied, who are you know, who uh, again, why would we add more people to a broken program? Because not only are they not going to get served, um, but it's going to crowd out the people for whom it was intended. Mm -hmm. And uh, that sounds like the very much kind of a personal case with or uh, that that you dealt with specifically.
1: I can relate. I can relate.
0: Yeah. um, um, uh, Okay. And so so now we kind of laid out the problems with Medicaid, and this really is probably one of the top two or three or five you know issues. in, in healthcare today is, mm-hmm. is you know, how do we get access, you know, for low-income people, how do we get access? Um, but then the pandemic comes along. Right, and so uh, I want to get into this issue because this is the one that's kind of in the headlines today, yeah. which is that you know nine hundred thousand people are being uh, are being canceled, having their Medicaid canceled, and so it makes it look like you know Texas is is cold-hearted and yeah. is throwing people off of Medicaid, and all these people are losing their insurance and access to health care. Of course, when you dig down to get into the details, uh, that's of course not uh, not really the, the the truth of the of the story. But let's start at the very beginning. Let's start at the pandemic and and what did the you know at the time the trump administration what did they do to uh, to medicaid uh to kind of react to the pandemic
1: yeah so uh December 2019, I think we had about 3.8 or 3.9 million people on the caseload. In Texas. In Texas. Yeah. And 67% of those people were children. So family that had like kind of like a lower income, but not quite Medicaid eligible parents. But, you know, they had a kid, so they were able to get eligibility that way. So 67% of that 3.8 million were kids. Mm-hmm. Um, 22% was a mixture of people with disabilities like blindness uh, also, elderly folks need that are low income that need help to get uh, coverage for their nursing homes. And the last small sliver, seven percent, was uh, for n- able-bodied adults or adults anticipated to be able to get a job and therefore be off Medicaid later. Um, of that seven percent, though, most are pregnant women that mm. are also getting postpartum coverage as well. Okay, Um,
0: so that's how so it, the truly needy, right? The tr- yeah, the okay. truly needy,
1: or the the people that,
0: or at least the sub, the people that are going
1: through something that's making it hard to. uh, Get access to a job or other resources that make them therefore eligible for another form of health insurance so it's it was designed to be that safety net for those people that's how it functioned and uh, honestly that number hasn't changed for like six years like so 2016 to 2014 it's only bounced between 4 million to 3.8 million so there hasn't been a change, and that's because we had, like, house cleaning mechanisms. And also, uh, since we recognized um, the Medicaid program to be something that's temporary, right, a lot of people that came on did go eventually get off right. because they got a new job. And that's how it functioned for a long time.
0: And this is an important point I want to jump in before you tell the rest of the story, is that is, is that um, every year the folks at HHSC, the the department here in Texas, yes. they go through the roles, and they do an audit, so to speak, and you'll mm-hmm. tell, tell us about that, but basically ensure... That the people who are getting Medicaid services or getting Medicaid benefits are actually eligible. So every year they go through and they, you know, do an audit to make sure that people who are getting it are actually deserving of it, which of course, you know, preserves the program for the people for it was intended. So so take us through the what happened with the pandemic after that.
1: Yeah. So the pandemic happened, scary things, stuff was shutting down, people were losing jobs. I think Congress recognized that. And so Congress decided like, hey, let's create the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, which you know was the advent of stimulus stuff but there was a really important couple paragraphs in that bill that said hey states if you agree to take more federal money and not disenroll people from your Medicaid program, so the ending of that, you know, that annual renewal that you were talking about, mm-hmm. you can get access to those funds. And so you only
0: get access to the funds if you stop looking to see if people are eligible.
1: You can monitor, but you can't actually disenroll, no matter what. Okay, no matter what, even it, if you
0: find that they're ineligible, you, you can't yeah. if, say they got a job <laughs> and they have insurance now. You still can't disenroll them from Medicaid. So if people they could die double or if they move
1: out of the state, yeah, yeah. Okay. If you're, they die or move out of the state, yeah, it gets that extreme. And so, <laughs> yeah, So as long as you're accepting the what's called the federal. Uh, Medicaid assistance percentage, you cannot or the increased amount, you can no longer disenroll people. So it was called the continuous enrollment rule. Uh, President Trump signed it into uh, law. The interesting thing about it, too, was that it wasn't tied to like a definitive end date. It was Mm -hmm. actually tied for tied to the public health emergency. So as long as the public health emergency was going on, uh, the continuous enrollment rule would still stay alive. Mm. And, you know, even I feel like in 2022, a lot of us were like, oh, things are opening back up. Shops are coming back together. People are finding new jobs. Things are actually turning ahead. Unemployment's going down. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think a lot of people that were, that signed up for medicaid at the wor- you know the country's worst yeah. were still on even though they might have had their lives changed for the better I
0: mean in fall of 2021 Texas was already back to pre pandemic employment levels I mean yeah. 2021 yep. so the public emergency was was over
1: I know like I believe in the middle of 2020 uh we saw Texas had a 12.6 unemployment rate which translates roughly into about 3.3 or 3.5 million Amer- mm-hmm. like a uh, Texans didn't have a job yeah. so it means and a lot of them ended up actually Enrolling on to Medicaid at the time uh, to give you an idea, as I said, right, six years before the pandemic, Medicaid only changed about two hundred thousand people at a time. It stayed between three point eight and four uh, four million people, but all of a sudden, you know, when we hit twenty twenty, in a span of like two years, the Medicaid caseload expand, like increased by thirty percent. It went from like four million people to six million people. And I don't think a lot of people realize like the stress that causes on a system that wasn't designed in the first place, Mm -hmm. especially with no doctors seeing the like you know, two thirds of doctors not seeing those folks, right? That that what that creates and what that does to children. People, with disabilities, right, pregnant women. That's as just we said, folks. crowding yeah.
0: out the folks for for whom it was intended, and then the Biden Biden administration makes it worse by extending the the public health emergency.
1: Yeah, and also like a lot of people that signed up for 2020 when the continuous enrollment rule was going on, and you know, as Biden and keep kept extending the PHE those people that were new to the Medicaid program were accustomed to the rule no process. They didn't realize that HHSC could like say, hey, there's an anomaly in your data and we want to make sure you're still at the same address. A lot of these people didn't realize they had to like give new information to HHSC saying, hey, I'm moving locations, I'm still poor or I'm still low income. Mm -hmm. can like make sure that I'm still like, I'm still good. They weren't used to doing those normal practices, and so when this disenrollment thing came up, it's because states, not just Texas, but many states, were hemorrhaging money. Also, the Medicaid program was losing its integrity, and people did need to get disenrolled, and people were truly becoming ineligible. right? So it's becoming this huge
0: mess, yes. right? And then finally, the Biden administration um, ends the public health emergency, I think, or, uh, earlier this year, yes, I think is when it happened. And that's when that's when all kind of the the dam starts to break a little bit on some of this stuff, because HHSC, again, the, the state department here, um, <clears throat> the department uh, that handles healthcare here in Texas, starts going back to its normal procedures of evaluating whether or not people are actually eligible for the program. And that's when it starts to look like they're cutting everybody off of Medicaid and so on. So take us through that.
1: Yeah. So I think a lot of Medicaid recipients that signed up between 2020 and 2023, again, they weren't used to all these processes. And they thought, since it was kept getting, like the the PHE kept getting extended, that they were going to have Medicaid forever. Yeah, sure. But all the states, ask any state Medicaid director, everyone knew that this was a very temporary measure. They're just shocked that it went on for so long. But there was a lot of preparation in the works. And so there's a lot of monitoring and figuring out, like, for example, like, hey, have you not filed a Medicaid claim in the last 13 months? Because if you haven't, that's probably telling us that you are you got a job and you probably get are getting private health insurance and right. you cannot be lo- no longer on the Medicaid program because we're losing money per head. And it's also exacerbating wait times at the emergency room for the people right. that are truly still eligible
0: right and so uh, that gets us into this this awful term called procedural denials yeah that's the um, and this is the one uh, where the media is getting involved now and uh, as the media tells this story um, that uh, that you know 900,000 Texans are getting you know pushed off of Medicaid and it turns out the way they make it sound is like there's some kind of technicality right like that's that oh they were 73% of them were for procedural Procedural denials, of course. What is a procedural denial and how would you get denied mm-hmm. um, in this in this way uh, uh, and get pushed off of Medicaid?
1: Yeah, so just being fair, like a pure definition of like procedural denial that's typical is like someone didn't respond to the renewal packet that mm-hmm. HHSC s- sent out to them saying, hey, we we looked at your case, you're in this first cohort being discussed for a, this thing called redetermination, the actual review process. Mm-hmm. We need you to respond to this. If people didn't respond to it, they were disenrolled if they misfilled in the information on the paperwork, it was, they were disenrolled. If there was something outside the renewal packet, like they just want to confirm your address or they like prompted you or messaged you to like affirm some kind of information. You didn't respond to that. You were disenrolled. This may seem like a technicality. And I think that people that's like where the controversy is, is like, Oh, you know, people are either getting these renewal packets unjustly, or uh, this is an unfair technicality. Mm-hmm. And I think like, there's that's that's totally misleading It's totally. because, as I said, right, like a large number of people, they're not responding to the renewal packets because they don't understand how to do it or that HHSC failed to get made sure it like lands up in their lap. A lot of people, again, like we had 12, we had 12.6 un, like, percent unemployment rate, a couple million people. Mm hmm. And a lot of them were parents who were unemployed and that got Medicaid for their children in Texas. And so, you know, when you look at some media right now, they'll say, oh, Texas is haphazardly getting children off the program. When the reality is like, no, the parents found new jobs and the child got flagged because they weren't using Medicaid, like they weren't filing Medicaid claims anymore and they got pinged, and the parents were kind of scared of fraud, or they just didn't really care because they were getting mm-hmm. private health insurance, and they didn't respond. Right.
0: And so so they get the pa- – you know, you said 12% unemployment, and then it goes down within a year. Yep. It's back to 5 or 4% or, or yeah. wherever it was. And so that's a ton of people that now have jobs and, and most likely have access to employer-based uh, uh, health insurance. And so they get the Medicaid packet that says, hey, can you fill this out to keep Medicaid? And they're like – I don't need Medicaid. And yeah. so they don't fill it out. And so that person would then get a procedural denial because they didn't turn in the packet. And that's what the media is looking at and saying, oh, you're kicking all these people off of Medicaid and they're not going to have access to insurance when, in fact, the, uh, the opposite is true. Most of these people, and we'll get into this in a second, but most of these people do have access uh, to something other than Medicaid because the economy was coming back.
1: Yes. And another annoying thing about all this is I think a lot of people are kind of saying like there was something wrong with HHSC, like the way that they were handling this IT process and automating like uh, the release and forwarding of this renewal pack information to people they're saying that it was fraught with error and you know i think we just we have now disenrolled 900,000 people 95,000 people were disenrolled erroneously because they were actually still eligible mm-hmm. and a lot of people might be kaffa it's like oh like if they were disenrolled wrong is how can we trust the rest of these and i was like go ahead Talk to any other state Medicaid director right now and all of them left or right states will tell you that it was a monster to -hmm. work with CMS like they were planning and they were getting ready to make sure this thing went smoothly and that people would be like forwarded to the right locate like to the right places afterwards they were disenrolled but. CMS kept changing like the methodology, how you're supposed to conduct the redeterminations, how you're able to start looking at your entire caseload. It was in flux. And like that and the, also, you know, while the pandemic was going on, it's not like uh, HHSC was getting more in state employees to help them. So right. they were short staffed and they had to deal with this really complex uh, CMS who was trying to tell them what to do and it kept changing, and there was just such so like lack of consistency, it began a lot of chaos. But every state right now. Mm -hmm. Is operating with about a 10 to 9% error margin. And that tells me it's like, it's not confined to just Texas, right? It's not just HHSC's fault. It's the way that CMS has been interacting with multiple state Medicaid programs. Mm -hmm. And if all these states have like that error margin, how can we just sit here and pretend it's all Texas's fault?
0: Right. Exactly. Um, I want to get to, because we have a few minutes left, want to yep. get to the study, the Urban Institute study yes. slash uh, Paragon. Uh, what did, what, what they had a study that looked at the, um, the, the uh, 18 million people mm-hmm. who, who projected, uh, projected 18 million people who were on Medicaid, who would then get um, um, essentially disenrolled because they're no longer eligible f- uh, for Medicaid. What did they find out about those 18 million people?
1: So, the Urban Institute found some interesting data. It's kind of funny; they weren't actually trying to say this uh, in a way that uh, made it non existential But uh, the Paragon Health Institute, and Urban Institute, found out of the eighteen point four something million people that were projected to get disenrolled off Medicaid across all the states, that ninety-nine percent of them were e- were either going to be getting health insurance from a new employer, private health insurance, or they'd be eligible for an alternative. Coverage program or Obamacare, like with a tax credit to like pay your premium. Mm-hmm. And also, there was an appeals process. So, for this 1%, or the very slim margin that we were seeing of people that were erroneously disenrolled because of the chaos of the IT process, like everyone, w- one way or another, was going to be getting healthcare coverage after getting disenrolled. And it kind of like is, like, the epitome or, like, the protest against all the stuff that we're seeing in the news is, like, yeah. oh, this, the states are going to make all these people uninsured. It's like, no. They have ample resources to go. Also, you know, as we said, like, like the 95,000 people here in Texas that were wrongly mm-hmm. disenrolled, they were quickly sped through the appeals process and they got back onto Medicaid. Right. And also, like, a lot of states prepared that appeals process knowing that they'd rather, like, make sure that there's, a like, an rec- a action, a action of recourse for these people that got stuck with an IT issue. Yeah. And that they could make sure that they weren't going to be uninsured. But the point being is, like, all these people, like, everyone, we were all scared and freaking out. Like, oh, my gosh, we're going to leave our most vulnerable population or, like, these people in this, like, Medicaid gap out to the wolves. Mm -hmm. And, no, they have tons of ample resources that I would just say it's, like, instead of, like, bashing on every state Medicaid program that makes you upset, it's, like, we should be focusing on helping these people find that next, uh, next step.
0: Yeah. Right, so just just to recap that, of the people that that were uh, projected to get uh, disenrolled, the vast majority of them, ninety nine percent of them, would have access to some other kind of health insurance, like Obamacare or or health in, or uh, employer based uh, health insurance. And the folks that were erroneously uh, taken off or disenrolled from the program were then uh, had an appeals process, and they quickly got back on. Of course, those two facts are not things that you would read uh, in the Texas media because uh, they. Contradict the the narrative that you know that that policymakers the is yeah is a monster is is uh, mean spirited and, and throwing people off of Medicaid or leaving them in the lurch. Um, okay, so now that we've debunked that, uh, I definitely want to we we definitely try to, to end on a positive note. Uh, usually on the show, um, so while we have a couple minutes left, um, the fact is there are people in the Medicaid gap, right? Yeah. And that's the gap of people who make too much money to be eligible for Medicaid but don't make enough to be able to afford uh, private insurance or their Employer doesn't um, uh, provide it for them, or, or some, something mm-hmm. along those lines. Um, there needs to be a solution for that because because that population is the one that people look at and say that's where that's why we need to expand Medicaid is because those people are in the gap, yep. and if you expand Medicaid, it would cover those people, and everybody would be hunky dory. What is a better solution? What is a more what is a TPPF solution yeah. uh, for for folks uh, in the Medicaid gap?
1: Those people are like the future, deciding how American healthcare and Texas healthcare is going to look like. The more that these people feel like they need not like have the government intervene on their behalf, that's a better world that we can live in with uh, like health coverage and the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So th- we should be thinking like this whole event with Medicaid disenrollment was the perfect catalyst for us to talk about another another safety net, but not a public safety net, a private safety net, actually supposed to be given to us through nonprofit hospitals, mm-hmm. aka charity care, okay. and charity care. Is a thing since uh, nonprofit hospitals, uh, when they incorporate and they're deciding to become nonprofits, they get these giant tax exemptions, corporate, uh, real estate, like property, mm-hmm. um, fran- uh, sales, franchise tax, big big money. So it comes out to be about $20 dollars in annual value, and it's increasing. just
0: Texas or no, or that's cross, across the nation, twenty eight uh, billion.
1: Yeah, Texas. So we have a, we contribute a couple billion dollars of value yeah. there. So
0: huge tax credits for for being a hospital.
1: Yeah, and you only get those tax exemptions because you're entering into a social contract saying, hey, these tax savings. Nonprofit hospital you're going to spend that money that you're not giving the federal or state governments on people in your community typically uh that's that's called community benefit but a real key aspect of community benefit is charity care and this this charity care is often left for people that are not they're they're low income but not quite medicaid mm-hmm. eligible and Upwards towards middle class, we're talking about like 113% the federal poverty level, right. upwards to 400% the federal poverty level. So people making like a little over $18,000 a year to almost $50,000 a year can either get their care completely covered at these nonprofit hospitals or they can uh, get a giant discount, like a 90% discount a cash rate service. Mm-hmm. And Really, I don't think a lot of Texans even know what charity care is. Right. Just to be just to recap again,
0: the you know the idea is they're getting these huge tax breaks, and that the trade-off for getting these massive tax breaks, which obviously contribute to the bottom line uh, on these hospitals, is is they have to use some portion of that money to then help uh, low-income folks who need who need healthcare. Yes. Okay. So,
1: is the trade-off working? And the status quo, no. I just don't think there's a lot of accountability and since there's like, you know, we've been struggling with the healthcare system with opaqueness for a long time and the fact that people don't even know you could go to your local nonprofit hospital and apply for charity care mm-hmm. is problem number one. And I yeah. think a lot of hospitals they use these tax exemptions as a competitive advantage to buy up every single doctor under the sun while staying in nonprofit entity right Mm -hmm. they're actually outpacing the for-profits in terms of consolidation so what state law like what the lawmakers or other like policy folks should be thinking about is like charity care is supposed to be like the second line or the the second line of defense where it's like if there's episodic need while you're looking for a job or trying to find like a more of a long-term solution if the worst case happens you should be able to go to your nonprofit hospital Fill out a charity care app. It gets processed quickly, yeah. and then you have an appointment scheduled, and you're taken care of right then and there. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be like a long-term coverage solution, but it could be the thing that saves you as you're get, as you're like disenrolled and you're looking to get that next form of long-term coverage.
0: And so since this is the right idea and we like to talk about the right idea, so is is there is there a movement, is there an idea, is there legislation or or policy reform that will help bring this out to people so that they're more aware of, of charity care and, and uh, that it's available?
1: There's a lot A lot of states are doing studies to kind of look at, like, are nonprofit hospitals actually playing ball and doing this or is there something requiring law to be done? Like, mm-hmm. we need to take legislative action here. Um, I think that there's a lot of precedents. Like, for example, in Oregon, I think, like, 36,000 people making less than 17k a year uh, were sent to third-party debt collectors at Providence hospitals and Swedish hospitals, and that caused the Washington Attorney General to get very upset because those hospitals were supposed to be taking care of those people. Yeah, and that triggered legislation. Oregon just passed a bill last year. Montana did a legislative audit. Um, that's finding that we now need to create charity care laws. Uh, North Carolina is also going through this process with their treasurer. Um, Pennsylvania and the courts. So there's a lot of states becoming aware that, oh, this is overlooked. We need to address this with legislation. So whether that be spreading the charity care obligation across the entire hospital system, at a non, like a nonprofit hospital system, mm-hmm. increasing disclosure... Or just making sure that hospitals aren't trying to make money somewhere else instead of giving you charity care like they're supposed to. Right. Okay. Well, um,
0: that's a great idea. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> I know that's going to be a big part of, uh, of of what what you're working on for the next session uh, and next year, and just even just promoting this idea that it's available to people and um, and getting people to to know that that's a you know a, a good alternative, a you know a, a better, more efficient, more uh, cost saving alternative than expanding Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, that's it. For our show, we really appreciate you, Tanner, for for coming on and talking about these healthcare issues. Uh, we really appreciate our listeners and and all of our watchers uh, every every week. Um, and as we like to say at the end of the show, do good and risk the consequences. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>